Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. When she was still in training, Dr. Lena Wen led a student organization whose motto was, it takes more than medical school to make a physician. It also takes more than MD after your name to be the kind of courageous, unflagging, ethical public health leader this country needs. And Dr. Wen's memoir shows why. She has lived the advice from a mentor and close friend, turn your pain into passion, your passion into purpose. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency room doctor and professor of public health at George Washington University. She's a former public health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, and her new book is titled Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Dr. Wen, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you, Carrie. Great to join you again. That advice on turning pain into passion and passion into purpose came to you from the late Congressman Elijah Cummings. And I wondered if, until you began to write the memoir, you'd, you'd fully understood how formative your grandparents' experiences were and your parents' struggles were in China and then in the United States and how meaningful they were for shaping your character and the kind of the kind of doctor that you are? Had you had you understood that? It's a great question, and I'm not sure that I fully understand it still. I, I will tell you that I hadn't intended to write about my family history at all. Um, the way that I had initially pitched this book was about Baltimore and the work that we did in public health, because I wanted to share positive, hopeful examples of what public health can do. I wanted to talk about, for example, the fact that we um, we we saved with our um, our programs to reduce opioid overdose deaths. We saved more than 3,000 lives in three years. I wanted to talk about our work in infant mortality, reducing infant mortality in our city by 38% in a seven-year period. I mean, we were so proud of our work, and I thought people need to understand what public health does. But in writing the book, I also realized that my own story, in a way, is a story of public health as well. And so I um, actually had to search deep in my memory bank because many of the people who would have known about the history, including I wrote a lot about my, my relationship with my mother, but these individuals are no longer with us now. And so it took, it ended up being, this book ended up being a journey into um, reflecting on a lot of relationships that I actually never did before. I'm so glad it came out that way because I think I hope we're in a in an era where understanding the science is in some ways informed by understanding the character of the scientist and what motivates them for the work and the contribution to common good that they give and and boy that was my experience in reading your memoir does that make sense to you it does. I mean, I think it is important to understand where people's passion comes from. Mm-hmm. And for me, my drive, and I start the book, uh, Lifelines, this way, talking about how when I was a, a child, how I witnessed a boy, a neighbor, die in front of me from an asthma attack. I had asthma too, and so was there. Think, I mean, I just, I remember this actually still very well now. I mean, I know that feeling of how you struggle to breathe, that you're breathing in and you can breathe in, but you can't fully exhale and it gets harder and harder. And you don't know whether you're going to get that next breath. And I saw this boy 
struggle and knew that he needed help, but his grandmother was too afraid to call for help for fear that they might be deported because they were undocumented immigrants. And I just, I, I mean, it's obviously it's it's such a profound tragedy. Um, and I often think about where this boy would be now if he actually had not died. But it left such a deep mark on me and is absolutely the reason why I wanted to enter medicine, but not just go and become a doctor. I specifically wanted to be an ER doc because I never wanted to be in a profession um, where I had to turn patients away because they couldn't pay because of where they may come from. Um, and um, I, I talk about, I think, these types of experiences growing up. I mean, my my parents and I are, are immigrants. We came to the U.S. with less than $40 to our name. Um, we had some challenging circumstances growing up that I actually also for the most part, had blocked out. I mean, I, wow, I didn't keep really? a diary and I didn't really, I just didn't really think about these circumstances until I started writing the book. I'm so glad we have a chance then to to talk about those experiences in your childhood and your family's, your, your grandparents' experience in China. Your father's father was a linguistics professor when the Cultural Revolution began. And because he was educated... He was beaten in front of his students and sent to prison. How aware were your was your father as to you know how your his father was viewed in China and the risks and the threat to their everyday life? Was that something oh, I, he understood? I am certain that he did. I mean, um, the the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, is very much in the consciousness of of everyone. I mean, it's definitely in the consciousness of people of my grandparents' era, my parents' era. I mean, my my father at that time um, was a, I believe that he was a um, a college student, and so he mm-hmm. definitely was at the age where he understood. And also, he um, became a dissident himself and was imprisoned because of his views. My mother was substantially younger at that time when the Cultural Revolution first started. She was in the fifth grade. And at that point, the government said, we're not going to have schooling anymore. I mean, they'll, they'll have, quote unquote, education classes. But for a particular ideology, it wasn't what we would consider to be schooling. My mother's mother ended up sneaking in books and by candlelight, my mother read these kind of these illegal books for which her mother could have gone to jail for, for giving her daughter books. And um, my mother's last year of formal schooling was the fifth grade. Then mm-hmm. when the Cultural Revolution ended, there was the opportunity for people to apply to college. But of course, all these people had not been in formal schooling all this time. It was really competitive to get into the very few slots. And my mother ended up being one of those individuals. And again, that's something that I, of course, I was aware that my mother ended up going to college and um, uh, when, when the revolution ended. But I had no idea of what it must have been like to have gone from no formal education past the fifth grade to entering college. I just want to note here also that your father's mother, so your paternal grandmother, saw her children sent to labor camps and all of their possessions were burned or taken. You've told me just a couple minutes ago that this is, this is you know, family lore and family stories that you'd kind of forgotten about. So how did you get back in touch with understanding what had happened to your grandparents? 
You know, I'd forgotten about it in part because it wasn't something that we talked about in the family.、Mm. As in, every family really in China has stories like this, and I think there was also this level of paranoia in my parents and grandparents. And, and their generation, they didn't want to talk about it. They were, they always thought somebody from the government is going to be listening. They didn't want to get in trouble. And so I remember this from my childhood, but I had to piece together a lot of components. I mean, I talked to my father, who is alive, and and of course he,、um, recalls some of this.、Um, I, I, but he also has blocked out a lot himself. Um, I talked to my cousins who heard bits and pieces from their parents, and so, it, you know, I, I and I wrote this、um, as a disclaimer in Lifelines as well. I mean, I tried my best to piece this together. I may have gotten some of this wrong.、Um, the person actually who was by far the best historian, if you will, who would have absolutely remembered all of this and been able to write a great memoir herself was my my mother. But unfortunately, she's、mm-hmm. not alive. Yeah, what I think. What I think. Your recounting of your extended family's experience in China—it it gives us this sense of how urgent it was for your parents to get out of China. You know what motivated the kind of sacrifices that they made. So your mother comes to the United States first. Will you will you describe a bit of what that decision means and how she makes it? I had. Always known that our goal was to get out of China,、um, and that's because of the political problems that my father, in particular, was facing in China at the time. And so, I had this vague understanding that his opportunities were limited,、uh, our opportunities as a family were, were limited, and we needed to come to to the U.S. Of course, I didn't quite realize that everything hinged on my mother. And so the pressure that she must have been under, because at that time it was very hard to leave China. One of the only ways was through education, as in if you got into a graduate program in the U.S. Well, hugely competitive because that's what so many people wanted to to be able to do as a pathway to this promised land, as as we saw it. So my mother went to college.、Um, She also at that time. I remember growing up, just always wondering, well, where is she? Because everybody else's moms were around. My mother at that time had to live in the dorms in China. That wasn't an option for her, so she wasn't around. And I actually have been reflecting a lot about this too. I was such a bratty kid. I mean, in China, my mom wasn't <laughs> around because she was in college. Because she was in college, then when we when we came to the to the U.S., my mother was a student at a graduate student at Utah State in Logan, Utah, and she was also working. She was cleaning hotel rooms. She worked at a video store at the same time that she was studying full time. And so, of course, she wasn't around. And I mean, I just I'm I thought back, and again, all these memories just came back. Especially now that I have my own kids, and I, I have a、um, a son who's almost four, who says a lot of things. You know, right now he's in his "you're gross" stage. If we do something that he doesn't <laughs> like, he often says "you're gross" or "it's yucky," and you know, and he's in this bratty phase. And I thought back as a child, how many times I said to my mother. Something to the effect of, "Well, everybody else's moms are around. Why aren't you ever here?" As in, she never went to my—not never, but I don't really recall actually her ever going to my PTA meetings or to, you know, to events at school. And of course, now it's so obvious as to why she didn't go. I'm sure she would have wanted more than anything to go, but she was always working, and she did that for us. 
You know, I, I've wondered how long your mother must have thought about how she was going to tell you that she was coming to the United States when you and your father are still in China. I think you are seven, and she sits you down to tell you that she's going to be leaving. And one of the things that she says to you is one needs to look forward because one is always afraid of the shadows. That is a... It's a frightening and a somewhat profound thing to say to a child of seven. And yet it gives you a sense of, again, the, the capacity, the sacrifice that she's making. What, That's right. And, what do you yeah. think she meant? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I started the book with this chapter, and I called the chapter chuku, which in Chinese means to eat bitter. Now, it's supposed to mean, as I understood it, you eat bitter in order to taste sweet. My parents and their parents, so many people had gone through such hardships. But I think they made sense of the hardships by saying, well, we're doing this for a bigger cause. We're doing this to provide better opportunities for our children. Um, you mentioned Congressman Elijah Cummings earlier, and he had a phrase to talk about this too, about how our children are messengers to a future that we will never see, with the implication being that the work that we do is for our children. And so I think that's what my mother was trying to say too, that yes, we've gone through all this stuff before, what is the use of dwelling on it? And I actually think that's why I didn't know so much about my 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 parents' history and their family history, just because people didn't want to talk about them. They wanted to say, well, how are we going to move forward? And I think that kind of mentality has also informed my approach as well. That, I mean, part of it is being an ER doc where we're always looking for tangible, practical solutions. But I also am quite impatient with descriptions of problems, because at some point you want to move on and say, yes, I realize that these problems exist, but what are the tangible things that we can be doing now? Tell me what you mean by that when you say you're impatient with descriptions of problems. Well, jumping ahead a bit, um, one, um, when I first started in my job as the health commissioner for Baltimore, I remember going to a meeting where somebody from my agency was presenting to a community group about the statistics of health in Baltimore. And I mean, I am all for science and data and statistics. And actually, this community group specifically wanted to understand where they stacked up uh, compared to the rest of the city. And so we had an excellent epidemiologist who was presenting these data. But at some point, I saw people's eyes glaze over. And it's because you can basically use the same map and superimpose anything in the legend, and it would be the same as in the same neighborhoods that have the lowest low, uh, the lowest life expectancy, also tended to have the highest infant mortality, also had the highest overdose rates, that also had the um, the worst outcomes when it comes to education, that also had the highest rates of violence and incarceration. I mean, at some point, when all you do is admire the problem you end up getting mired in this, well, the problems are just so big. I mean, by definition, public health is kind of about everything, right? We talk about how it's not just the care that you receive, it's also the air that you breathe. It's the food that you have access to. It's all these other factors. But then I think people get caught in this decision paralysis of if everything is affected by everything and the problems are, are systemic, then where do I even begin? Well, 
I think another approach to doing this and what we ended up doing at community meetings is, yes, we want to present the data, but then we specifically say, here is what we are already doing. We recognize that these problems are longstanding. We're not going to resolve and increase life expectancy overnight. And we're, um, and, um, but there are tangible things that we can do. So let's combine long-term action with short-term tangible steps. So if our goal, for example, is to reduce cardiovascular death, which is something that we may not see the result for for 10, 20 years. In the meantime, how about let's work to reduce our food deserts? Uh, we partnered, as an example, with one of our grocery stores to deliver healthy fruits and vegetables and, and groceries to seniors who lived in food deserts where they otherwise wouldn't have had access. Um, we worked with corner stores to stock fresh produce um, and help them with refrigeration and other challenges. I mean, that's a tangible short-term step. Is it going to change that map of Baltimore overnight? Of course not. But that's a way of, first of all, delivering to residents something that they really need, and second of all, I think also giving hope, because otherwise we're just going to look at a map of problems and be further mired in this understanding that the problems are big. But let's talk about solutions. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a show about big books and bold ideas. Dr. Lena Wen is our guest. Her new book is titled Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. You know, that that frame the way you talk about public health, again, as I listen to, you know, the, the commitment and the passion you bring to this, I think, again, how that must have been informed by this experience as a child. Your mother has come to the United States. Eventually, you and your father join your mother in the U.S. As noted, your parents have $40 to start this new life. And that is only, this is what's remarkable, that is only the beginning of a really difficult time that includes a lot of frightening instability and homelessness. And your parents have to take these jobs that, that don't fit the level of education that they have. And at one point you stand outside of a supermarket to ask strangers for money because you are aware of how worried your parents are about money. I mean, when I think of that story and I think about the way you describe public health, there is a real intersection there. What do you see in that? That's right. And I, when I first became the health commissioner for Baltimore, that was really the first time that I began telling some of these stories from my childhood. Because mm -hmm. when I first started, people were thinking, um, who is this person? I mean, she doesn't come from Baltimore. <laughs> she, um, We are a predominantly African-American city. She clearly is not African-American. How is she relating to the experiences that we have in the city? And it was talking to community leaders. And over time, again, these are things that my childhood... I hadn't really talked to anyone about this before. My husband even heard very little of this. I talked to my, my little sister once in a while about this because she's also heard snippets and we wanted to share, but I really had not shared much of my childhood with, with anyone. And so um, I think being in Baltimore and over time sharing these stories with members of our community who are also going through similar challenges it, it made me recognize, of course, how much public health mattered in my own life. And writing the book, though, I think was still a, a challenge because it's different to have conversations in a group of 10 people. If I'm talking mm -hmm. to 
adolescents in Baltimore, and we're all sharing our own stories of um, of living through or living in communities where we're afraid to to walk to school because of 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 game violence around us. I mean, that's a very different kind of experience than writing down some very personal stories in in a book for anyone to to uh, to be able to read. And I actually ended up not just it wasn't just the childhood parts that were difficult to write about. I also wrote about my experience as a person who stutters. I wrote about infertility and having postpartum depression, having a miscarriage. I mean, these things that at different points in my life were traumatic, were sources of shame and fear, were things that I didn't want others to know about. Putting them all in one place, I have to say, I actually (laughs) felt kind of physically sick when the book first came out. (laughs) I have to to believe that the experience of your family and what you remember about the fear and the shame about your parents' immigration status is so important to the way that you interact and think about immigrant communities. I mean, there's a point where your your parents are thinking they're going to have to divorce, even though your mother is pregnant with your sister. And and, and, and it hangs on a knife's edge as to whether they are going to be able to remain in the United States. And it sounds like you remember pretty clearly, you know, those moments as your parents are trying to figure out what to do. Is that right? Definitely. I mean, from my childhood, the one lasting memory I have about what was the what we worried about every single day were two things. One was money. And the second is our immigration status or was our immigration status. I mean, money was was an issue for a long time. Um, it, we at different points, as you mentioned, um, we were evicted and went to shelters. We were dependent on friends um, who sometimes took us in. I mean, it was a, a, a challenging time. Um, and so my parents worried about, thought about, argued about money every single day. Then there was our immigration status. So we initially came, um, my, my father and I came as, um, uh, as dependents on my mother's, um, student visa. But then she finished her graduate degree and she was looking for a work visa to be able to sponsor her. And I remember going through all of this that she had different companies that said they would sponsor her, would do this for a short time. There was one company that kind of disappeared overnight. She didn't know where they went. She went in one day, there was an office. The next day, there was no office. She didn't get her paycheck. That went back to the money issue. But at some point, my parents had, we were, we were within weeks of losing our immigration status altogether which at that time, my mother feared, my parents feared more than anything. Um, and my parents had come up with this with this plan. And the plan was that my parents would get a divorce, as you mentioned, that my father would enter a what's called a paper marriage to someone else, as in oh someone who just on paper would, would get married so that he over time could become a, a permanent re- resident. And in the meantime, my mother and I had a plan to move to Canada we had we had a plane ticket to move to Canada. And I mean, all of this was happening. Of course, here I am thinking, I just made friends at school. I don't want to be leaving my, my friends. Um, and um, I mean, it was, you know, we were very fortunate at the last minute because my, my father ended up having um, a hearing to stay in the country on political asylum. That was one of the other paths that we were pur- pursuing at the time. And 
we were granted political asylum. But I, I have to say also, we might not have, if not for the fact that a friend of a friend said, you can't go alone, you need to have a lawyer. And we found this lawyer at the last minute, I think also a recommendation. The lawyer went, went, went with my, my father and we were granted political asylum. We were able to stay. Nobody had to be divorced or moved to Canada. But it's one of the many examples of how we got lucky, frankly. And mm. also another example of how there are unwritten rules of the road that not mm-hmm. everybody has access to. I, I just, two things about that. I'm sure you've thought about what life might have been like if, for your parents and for you and your sister, if that friend of a friend had not, at the last minute, you know, just as as we're saying, this kind of serendipitous connection that you have, your life could have been totally different, Dr. Wen, if your mother and you had to move to Canada and your father had to enter into this, this marriage. What occurs to you about that? Oh, there are so many moments like that. And as I was writing Lifelines, I thought about it that, yes, in my early childhood, um, so many things could have been different. I mean, there was another situation like this, too, that when my father and I were, well, so my, my, my mother had come to the U.S. first, and then my father and I were, were supposed to come together, but he ended up having a bleeding ulcer and was in the hospital we didn't know whether he would be, I mean, we had a plane ticket that took us a long time to get. We had a visa that was kind of tenuous. I mean, I was, we were really worried about my, my father's health, but we had to make the plane. And actually we were so worried about him. And this was, this was something that one of my cousins reminded me of. I'd also locked this out of my, my, my memory, but we were so worried about my father's health that, um, my grandfather, who knew English, I did not know English at the time, but my, my grandfather wrote down little slips of paper for me to take on the flight. And these little slips of paper had Chinese on one side, which I read at the time, I didn't know English, and so the, and English on the mm-hmm. other side. And they were things like, my father has a bleeding ulcer. He has passed out. He needs medical care right now. <laughs> I mean, there were things like that that we carried because I thought literally he could be bleeding out on the plane. And of course he didn't, and we were able to come. But again... Um, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. Here's the other thing that, that I want to ask you about, which is what you think when you hear the political rhetoric about immigration policy and the way it gets discussed in, in this country. You know, I mean, I think that, but for the grace of God, but for various serendipitous events, I could be here as a dreamer. Um, if we had the public charge rule, where um, uh, um, President Trump or former pre- President Trump and the and that administration had tried to say if there were immigrants that used public services of some kind, that it might make it more difficult for them to be granted citizenship and to be able to stay in this country. If that were uh, the case when my family was uh, was first coming here. What would we have done? I mean, would we have said that we're not going to accept, we're not going to apply for food stamps? Um, w- would we have said we wouldn't go to the hospital when my father's ulcer did actually start bleeding again? I mean, it's not, you know, I think about these opportunities that I've had, that I've been so fortunate to have in my adopted country here in the U.S. And 
how for our family this was not some kind of entitlement. That was never how we understood it. We understood it as a crucial safety net, and that in fact is the case for so many of the residents that I served in Baltimore as well. That for them, public health was a crucial safety net. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency room doctor, a professor of public health at George Washington University, and as noted, she's the former public health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. She's out with a remarkable new memoir called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. I want to spend a bit of time on your relationship with your mother, and I think it, I think it connects with what we've been talking about, the, the immigrant experience the expectations that parents who emigrate and raise children here with all the opportunity and the plenty that we have, what those, what those parents expect. And it, it, it seems that your mother has such love for you and such high expectations for you. And you admired, you admire her deeply now. Um, And yet it seems like a lot of that went unsaid between you, even up until her death. Is that right? Yes. And again, a lot of things that I wrote about in the book that I hadn't expected to. I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of writing Lifelines, which was not the initial title, the initial title was actually Public Health Saved Your Life Today, (laughs) because it was really (laughs) meant to be a public health book. Um, Uh If you had told me that, that, um, that this that I would end up writing about my mother and being a mother and motherhood so much this book, I I don't don't know that I would have wanted to write this book. But um, I mean, I am. in thinking about my relation with my mother, which I've done a lot since becoming a mom in particular, I remember that my mom had, as you said, very high expectations. And she also was someone who just, I mean, she was raised in a family where people didn't show physical affection or frankly much or any praise. And so I remember if I got a 97% on a test, she'd say, well, what happened to the 3%? Or if I ended up getting 100%, she would say that was too easy. That's why you got 100%. And so um, we, um, I remember also just feeling a lot of resentment because she made sure that I worked really hard. And I remember, for example, when I first came to the U.S., I didn't know any English. And my mother obviously thought that this was a big problem and she knew English and she wanted to make sure that I learn a certain number of vocabulary words. I mean, a, a large number to me, it seemed like the time, like, but like 100 words or something every night. Now, by the time that she came home from work and from school, I'd be asleep. She'd wake me up to make sure that I memorized these 100 words. She would quiz me on spelling, the definition, and usage. Of course, at that time, I was tired. I was a child. I resented (laughs) this and thought, why am I being awakened? And now I can't go back to sleep. But of course, the other way to think about it is imagine how tired my mother was at that time. I mean, coming back after a whole 16, 17 hours of being gone and knowing that this was really so important she had to wake me up to do. I mean, that's another way I think of saying this too, that now as a working mom myself, I can very much appreciate the sacrifices that she must have made. But of course, at that time, I really didn't recognize it. And, um, you know, it wasn't until she was diagnosed with cancer and I ended up being her caregiver that we started spending a lot of time together. Now, we there were still 
I think, so much baggage and history. And I think just because we had never been really affectionate with one another, I mean, as in maybe we hugged once a year. I mean, it just was not something that we that we did with one another. And as a result, I don't think we really made that connection until right before she died. Was there a conversation about what sacrifice in her life meant and what it meant in your life? And, and I mean all the facets of it, how it can be traumatizing, how it can be uplifting. Did you have that conversation with her? And what, what do you think was left not said about that? It's a great question. And I definitely not in the way that I would have wanted to, the way that I could now, um, the way that I want to now. I understood her sacrifice. And again, I don't mean this in, in any way to blame her or any of my other relatives. It's just that for me growing up, this was always framed as, well, look at all these things that your parents are sacrificing for you. You need to now do your part. It was always kind of said in that way. And so as a child, if you hear this over and over again as justification for everything, you know, as a child, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't have, I, I didn't know how to ride a bike. I didn't know how to swim. I didn't know. I mean, there were so many things that I wanted to be able to do, but we didn't have the access to, to it. We didn't have, um, we didn't have money. I mean, we, you know, we, there were many reasons as to why this wasn't practical, but anytime that was brought up, it was, well, look at all the sacrifices your parents are making for you. So if that's the excuse that's used every time you kind of tune it out, um, but I think it's something that, of course, I have a much better appreciation of it now. But also, I've been thinking a lot about how to communicate this to my children. I mean, my children mm-hmm. are in a much more privileged position than I was as a child. I don't want them to be, I want them to be aware of their privilege. I don't want them to be ashamed of it for some reason. But I'm not sure how to communicate the concept of sacrifice to them. I I wondered... Since, as as you've said, a lot of this book is about the idea of motherhood and the experience of motherhood, whether you catch yourself, you know, kind of leaning back into the things that your mother said to you, or just the ideas of what commitment within a family means, and how everybody has to kind of do their their share. And whether you catch yourself... um, thinking that and maybe speaking that in some way to your kids. Yeah, I mean, there were, there are discrete moments that come back to me as my kids have reached certain ages, and they're young. I mean, they're one and almost four, but there are certain moments. So as an example, one thing that for me at the time was, was traumatic um, and that I wrote about in the book was how I was so excited about having a little sister. I was 11 and a half when she was born and was so excited. I mean, I thought this is my little playmate. I'm going to, I was happy to change her diapers and take her out and do all these things. I actually wanted to give her the life that I wanted to have, but couldn't. I wanted her to have the exposures that I didn't have. And so was so excited to have her around. And I was heartbroken when my parents sent her back to China when she was just three weeks old. And I could not understand it. I mean, I don't, to be fair, I'm not sure that my parents explained it particularly well at the time. I mean, I understood this as 
it was sacrifice because my parents had to work and we were living in hard times. But I could not. I don't think I understood the idea of childcare. I mean, I thought of this little baby as, oh, she's so cute. <laughs> but of course, I didn't know what it really took to raise a baby. And I remember being so angry with my mother. And again, I feel really ashamed to say it now because after I had my two kids and I had such profound, unspeakable, unknowable love for them, <laughs> I can't really imagine. What my mother must have gone through to part ways with my little sister when she was just three weeks old. My mother at that time too, she had、um, she had a difficult pregnancy. She had a C-section. She went back to work immediately. I also can't imagine what that must have been like. I mean, I remember her being in physical pain, and I'm sure she was in such emotional pain. I mean, this was you know way past way before the time of Skype and FaceTime. We talked to my sister maybe. Twice or three times in the three and a half years that she was in China with my with my grandmother, I mean that's I cannot imagine that now,、um, and I have such an appreciation of it. So it's moments like that that have come to me when I'm raising my own children and thinking, wow, what was my mother going through at that time? You know, I I was also thinking about the stoicism that you saw your mother and your father exemplify, and. And maybe you've inherited more of that than you think, because you know your your section of the memoir when you write about being thirteen when you start college, and eighteen when you started medical school, and you know you have these kinds of. I know that sounds dazzling, but it really isn't because you could test into college, and I was just well prepared for college. But I mean, you don't write that much about how lonely. That must have been, and it must、mm-hmm. have been terrifically lonely. Yeah, it was, and I did. I think in a later section of the book, explain that I really didn't have friends until I was in my mid twenties. I,、um, you know, there are. I, I, whenever people find out, and I usually don't make a point of telling them, but whenever people find out that I went to college at age thirteen, <laughs> most people say, "Oh, you must have been really smart." But I, I actually didn't want to go to college at age thirteen. I mean, it was actually out of out of necessity because it was there was a work study program at that college, and I saw this as an opportunity to help make money for my parents while still being in school.、Um, I wrote about how, again, about how there are these unwritten rules and. I paid a lot of tribute to the mentors that I've had because I got really lucky with having incredible people in my life from an early age. Who, when I had no reason to believe in myself, they did in some way. I mean, I remember this one professor, Dr. Raymond Garcia, who has also since passed away. But he was—he would always ask me, "What do you really want to do?" Because when I first started college, I told people that I wanted to be a lab tech. I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't think that anyone would believe me. Actually, I was afraid that people would laugh because who was I to think that I could become a doctor? But my parents had a friend whose daughter was a lab tech, and I thought that's believable. I mean, if I say I want to be a lab tech, they'll say, "Okay, you're working in a lab as part of your work study. You are studying science, so you can become a lab tech." And so, Dr. Raymond Garcia, though, over time, asked me, "What do you really want to do?" And when I told him one day that I wanted to become a doctor, he said, "Oh, well, I have had students in the past who went to medical school. Let me introduce you to them."、Oh. 
And it was by meeting them that I learned about all these prep classes that you were supposed to take before you took your MCAT. I learned about community service experiences that you had to put on your application that I otherwise wouldn't have known about. Unwritten rules of the road that many right. people in who are in who, are, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds just don't know about. I remember too that I had I went to my career counselor's office at some point and said, "Here's what I have. Here are my grades. Here uh, here are my experiences." And the career counselor said, "Well, I talked to plenty of people like you. They apply to forty medical schools and they don't get into any." And I thought at that time, "Oh my goodness, that's the end of my dream." At some point, I said this to Dr. Garcia, and he said to me. In that case, you have to apply to 41 medical schools. <laughs> and I did, and I got in. But I, again, am not sure about where I would be now, to your earlier point, if I didn't have exceptional mentors like him and like so many others who really saw something in me and helped me. And also, if you didn't have people who understood that there are, we live in a culture that does have unwritten rules, and that if you're in, you know those rules. I mean, he understood that. He didn't say to you, oh, that guidance counselor is probably right. It's gonna be. He said, you can do this. You will do this. I see the, the spark in you. I mean, that's powerful too, that he didn't just kind of turn away and go with the, yes, that's how it is. How are we going to fix that's that? Right. That's right. And also, he was very practical, as um, as I've also worked on that pragmatic approach. He didn't just say, oh, I really believe in you, full stop. It was, I really believe in you. This is what you need to do. Talk to this other person who had a similar experience. I mean, he had, he introduced me to, I remember, students who had applied to medical school two, three, four years in a row. They pursued their dream, and eventually they were able to get there. And I really admired that grit and resilience. So I thought about your role as an ER physician, which is something that you continue to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it struck me that, you know, we have these interactions with our physicians, you know, whether it's in the ER in a crisis or in a hospital or in a clinic, and we almost never know about what made them the the people that they are and the doctors that they are, which kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier about understanding the story of the scientist too. I just think most, many of your patients would be astonished to know why you are the doctor and the person that you are, Dr. Wen. It's powerful to put this story out there for your patients too, don't you think? Well, I mean, I'm an ER doc and my patients see me in in very transient ways. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that for my patients specifically that it's necessarily helpful. Um, but I will say that as a public health person, because of, I'm always trying to convince people about the importance of public health, right? That's mm-hmm. um, the initial title of the book, Public Health Saved Your Life Today. It was <laughs> it then followed by but you just don't know it. Um, and so I feel like my calling is to let people know about the importance of public health and the life-saving and life-changing impact that it has. I do think that in that capacity, that as I'm talking about the importance of public health in our lives and why, for example, the programs that we had in Baltimore around school health services, why they were so important, I do think it's helpful for people to 
also see that I understand this as a beneficiary of these services, as someone who understands what it's like to be raised in and, and to be raised um, knowing that um, there are many challenges that we face every day. Okay. So, but, but I'm coming at this from thinking, you know, you come from a place of experience and deep compassion. And so when someone sees you on CNN talking about how important it is to get the vaccination, I mean, this adds, uh, it adds layers to don't hear this as an order, which I think a number of vaccine skeptical or hesitant people do. Hear this as a contribution to the common good that comes from a place of deep compassion. And that compassion was formed by your life experiences and your ideas, ideals and your values. I mean, that's where I think this, this really matters. Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. And I am... Um... It's actually one of the reasons why I decided to include some of these other parts of my story that I haven't really talked about in the past. I mean, I wrote, for example, about my struggle with postpartum depression mm -hmm. after the birth of my son. I was the health commissioner for, for the city at the time. And one of the programs that we were very proud of that I mentioned at the beginning was Be More for Healthy Babies. I mean, I was going around the city talking about the importance of mental health, how pregnancy and the postpartum period can be, um, pe people can experience the blues and they can experience postpartum depression and how mental health is just as important as physical health. I mean, that's what I talked about in my daily life. But when I experienced symptoms myself, first of all, I didn't acknowledge them didn't understand what they were. And then when I finally realized that it was postpartum depression, I was so embarrassed that when I went to the psychiatrist for the first time, and it was in a heavily frequented area, I made up excuses in case someone I recognized would see me. And I would say to them, oh, I'm here for work. I'm here for BMO for Healthy Babies Project or something. And <laughs> then I, so I felt, so, you know, so there was all this, I felt ashamed for seeking help, even though that's what I was telling people to do, then I, in my professional mm -hmm. life, then I felt ashamed for feeling ashamed because how am I being true to the work that I do? And then I felt shame for why would I even want help when I love my son so much? I mean, what's wrong with me? There, was, there were all <laughs> these different layers. And over time, of course, I saw that the diagnosis was not my liability. Actually, my shame was my liability. And then I began talking about this, and I hope that in writing about experiences like that, that to your point, Carrie, that it does show how much medicine does involve empathy and compassion mm -hmm. and recognizing people's humanity and understanding that, I mean, not everybody has a, an experience of postpartum depression and then fear and shame around that. But I think nearly everyone has something in their lives that were that was a challenge for them to admit or to acknowledge at some point. And the experiences that I have in sharing them, I hope that people can see the dimension that I bring to, to this work in clinical work and in public health. How open, towards that end, how open have you been about uh, the experience that you've had with your family getting COVID? Your husband, your three-year-old son, and your eight-month-old daughter have had the disease. Have you have you talked about that? What that's like as a mother, but also as a physician to go through that? You know, I actually did not talk about 
our family's COVID experience at the time that it happened. It wasn't just my story. I mean, it was also my husband's story. And frankly, we weren't sure how this would end. As in, I didn't want to share it at the time. And then I just, you know, for us, it was a private experience as well. I mean, what if my husband had ended up in the hospital? What if our children had ended up with long-term symptoms? I mean, I didn't, we weren't sure that we wanted to share this as it was happening. And by the way, of course, this was not something that I knew that I was going to write in the book. I mean, the last chapter of the book is entitled COVID Comes Home. I never mm-hmm. thought that I would be writing that chapter. Um, you know, I decided, of course, to write about it and share it for a few reasons. One is to say that, hey, we're all in this together, that we've all gone through this time of COVID together in some way. I mean, so many people, I think it's hard to find someone now who doesn't know someone who's had COVID. And, and, and tragically, we I think many of us know someone who's passed away because of COVID. Um, of course, coronavirus has affected us in other ways with our kids not going to school, with work being disrupted, people losing jobs and so forth. So I wanted to write about the experience of COVID overall in our in my family, as with everybody else. Then there are a lot of people who tried their best to avoid COVID, but got it anyway. And I think this is another reminder of how you can do everything on your part, but we also depend on one another. And that's part of what what I wanted to share as well. And I think the last reason is as a woman, as a mom, as a caregiver, you do experience this, I think, in in a bit of a different way. I mean, I wrote specifically about how I made the decision which maybe not everybody will, but I'm sure some others would too, that when my husband came down with COVID, it was, you know, he was never hospitalized, but he was ill. I mean, he had high fevers and was sleeping um, for most of the day. And then my little kids started getting symptoms and the baby in particular had severe diarrhea and needed to be hydrated basically every hour. I mean, the right thing to do, of course, on my end was to isolate. And mm-hmm. I had tested negative. And because I was also in a, in a clinical trial, I was getting regular tests prior to it. So I knew that I actually did not have COVID. But I made the choice to not isolate. And I think so many other people have made such a decision, maybe in particular women, but also I think many parents and many people make such a decision for the interest of our family. Of course, the most difficult kind of decision. I have one last question about public health, and it comes from an interview that I did a while back with Michael Lewis about his new book on the stories of these courageous public health professionals who have to go up against bureaucracy and they have to go up against skepticism and even ignorance in some of the places you'd never expect. And he profiles Dr. Charity Dean. She's a public health officer in California, and she ends up being very important to the way California approaches the pandemic. And she says to him of public health, quote, it's a series of intense firefights. There was no standard operating procedure for many of the situations in which she found herself. Can you relate to that? Does that sometimes feel what this work, this essential work in public health is like? Oh, definitely. Um, I very much relate to that. I also really liked the book Premonition and so would, ah, would highly recommend it, it to other. Yes. I did. Thank you. And um, um, I it, talk about the work that we did in Baltimore as uh, for the bulk of the book. And um, and in in Lifelines, I um, one of the chapters is about the work that we did in the aftermath of 
um, the uh, Freddie Gray's death while in police custody in 2015, right? The African-American man who died while in police custody. There were uprisings in our city following that. And we had more than 12, 13 of our pharmacies that were burned down, closed or looted. And we had to figure out how to get medications for people. We had vulnerable seniors who didn't have access to food and insure and other supplies. Um, we had huge trauma and unmet mental health needs as it was. And then you have this acute exacerbation, if you will, of something that was under, uh, that, that was, um, uh, that was underlying. And I talked about how, in a way, it's not unlike being in the ER, where um, you know that you'll have emergencies all the time. You train and you do your best and you work with your team and you know that everybody's there for the right reasons and, and you want to do your best. But when the emergency comes, in a way, you're flying by the seat of your pants because there's no rule book. I mean, no one has written a rule book about what public health should do in the, in the case of a civil unrest. Um, we figured out a way in the course of 24 hours to get people medications and food and get them to their medical appointments. But that, in a way, is the story of public health as well, that we are here to serve people. We are here to improve their health and well-being. We're here to reduce disparities. We see public health as a call to action to help with reducing inequalities and reduce disparities. I mean, we can do all these things, but it's also underfunded. It's undervalued. People don't see what public health is really about and the life-saving work that it does every day. And that ultimately is why I wrote Lifelines. And that too is why I'm so committed to this field that has meant the world to me and my family over the years too. Glad you're doing the work you do. Dr. Lena Wen is an ER room doctor and a former public health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And her new memoir is titled Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Dr. Wen, thank you. Thank you very much, Carrie. Great to speak with you today. Now for some adventurous reading. Listen to the description and guess where we are. And this is a bit of a softball for our first time out. They'll get tougher. We're on the street in a southern American city where we're breathing in the scents of the sea and springtime magnolias, simmering spices and hot sugar. We can hear the faint sounds of music and laughter as we stroll this city's neighborhoods and capture a melange of languages and local patois. This is a place that fires the imaginations of writers, and this writer has finally found a home here after some restless years of travel and blue-collar work. He will live in rooming houses and apartments, and the melody of everyday life the writer hears from his window, the comedy and tragedy and beauty of it, will end up in his finest work. In fact, there's a hotel here where you can see a handwritten page from one of this writer's finest plays, complete with scrawled edits. He will be known for an iconic line of dialogue, and he'll be celebrated on stages around the world. Look around. Take in the clues to our adventurous reading travel in the sounds and the smells and the rich life on the streets of this city. And if you know where we are and which writer we're with, tweet me right now at Carrie NPR. PR.